We are back in our I Am series, going through the seven I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. This morning we're in chapter 10, where we have two statements that are somewhat interwoven. Uh, You'll notice in verse 7, we find that Jesus says, I am the door. And then if you look down at verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. And both of these images seem to be interwoven throughout our verses that we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. Now, this Masal, or a kind of parable-like statement that we're reading about here today, picks up on some rich pastoral imagery. It's imagery that Jesus uses, or that's used of Jesus, as a kind of model shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and serves as the door to the flock. Now, this shepherding image might not connect with you. I don't know how many shepherds you spent time with over the last week, Uh, It it might be for you when you hear about shepherding, kind of like whenever I one time tried to explain to my kids about what a blockbuster is. And they said, what's a blockbuster? Is it like a Hulkbuster? I was like, no, not that exciting. But then you try to explain like there were these big tapes, like cassettes, and they're like, they don't know what cassettes are. Maybe you just feel disconnected from the image. You have some kind of thoughts about what a shepherd is, but it's hard to really think about it in the ways that the original audience would have thought about it. I mean, in Jesus' day, everyone would have been familiar with this significant vocation that was central to Israel's fiscal and theological history. Now, there are a number of places you could go to find a little bit about the history of shepherding. Uh, I find Timothy Laniac's book, Shepherds After My Own Heart, to be really helpful. Uh, He opens his book with a sketch of sheep husbandry in the ancient Near East, and he gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a shepherd. Even though shepherding could have been made into any kind of episode during their day of, of that, that show, Dirty Jobs. Y'all know what Dirty Jobs is? Like where you have these jobs, they're so dirty, nobody wants to do them. And they're like, here, let us show you slowly about all the gross things that we have to do. Um, uh, shepherding was a kind of dirty, lowly job. It wasn't really respected. That's why it's interesting. If you look at ancient civilizations, civilizations like Mesopotamia and Greece and Israel, they all actually looked at this job of shepherding, which was a lowly job, but saw it as a kind of model for what it looked like to be a healthy king. And so when you look at good kings, good kings and gods related to their people like a good shepherd cared for his sheep. You'll remember this in the Bible. You remember Moses. Uh, He was that great leader of Israel who led them out of uh, bondage to Egypt. And he did that carrying what? A a large staff, one of those uh, pieces of equipment that every shepherd had to carry. And he led them out of uh, the wilderness. He led them through the wilderness and out of slavery uh, towards the promised land. And then you'll also remember King David, the great king of all time of Israel. Do you remember what his job was whenever he was found and, and anointed as king? He was what? A shepherd who was tending his flock. Well, King David, you'll remember in Psalm 23:1, who was the shepherd of Israel, considered the Lord, and he says, The Lord is my shepherd. He is my good king. And I know that because he is such a good king and he's my king, I shall not want. He will provide for my every need. 
See, Israelite shepherds, they uh, were carrying a, a staff in one hand that would help them to, to carry back these wayward sheep and guide them. And in the other, he would have a rod, and that was used to beat off intruders or those who were trying to harm the sheep. Sometimes they even slept in the doorway of the sheep pen to keep out thieves and wolves, using their body as a kind of door. Now, that's how some connect the images of gate and shepherd here in our text this morning. I'm not sure that we can necessarily make that uh, as tight as some make it, but it is a beautiful image of the fact that this shepherd is laying down his life to protect these sheep. Now, Israelite shepherds, they were uh, guarding their particular kind of sheep, the Owasi fat tail. Uh, They had a a great relationship of intimacy with this sheep. In fact, uh, as we look at good shepherds, we knew that they grew their flocks and knew their sheep to the point that they knew them not just as a group, right, but individually. They knew each sheep by name. Uh, I love one statement in Laniac's book. He, he says this, highlighting the, the individuality of the relationship between a shepherd and each sheep. He says, in the terms of birth, health history, eating habits, and other idiosyncrasies, one of the most striking characteristics of the shepherd-flock relationship is that control over the flock is exercised simply by the sound of the shepherd's voice or whistle. See, good shepherds, they lead, feed, heed, and protect their sheep. But if you know about shepherds according to the Bible, there's also a massive warning that comes in Ezekiel 34 about bad shepherds. It's there that we find that Israel had bad shepherds who were beating and eating sheep during the Babylonian exile. And God's concern was bad Israelite shepherds there. But in Ezekiel 34, 23, God responds as their great shepherd promising there would be a day when he would set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, John 10 takes place 600 years after Ezekiel made this promise. 600 years after Israel was experiencing those bad shepherds. And if you notice that first verse in John 10:1, truly, truly, I say to you, it's signaling to us that Jesus is still speaking to the Pharisees from back in chapter 9. Do you, do you remember this from last week? It's there that these these shepherds, these bad shepherds, rejected Jesus. They saw that the works of his hands, that he gave a blind man's sight, and they rejected him and cast him out. And not only that, they went and found the blind man, and when the blind man refused to to deny that Jesus was who he was and and did what he said he did, they said, well, we're going to cast you out as well. See, these were shepherds who beat and eat sheep for their own purposes rather than feeding and caring for them. Well, this is the image in the background, the context in the background of our story this morning. This morning, shepherd imagery creates the picture throughout. But what I want to do here today is focus in on that first I am statement this morning. I am the door for the sheep. I am the door for the sheep. And we'll focus on Jesus as the good shepherd next week. Now, we can't ignore that because it's wrapped up with the door, but we're going to try to look at that more next week. Now, my big idea is this. If you take notes, a great thing to write down. Here's my big idea. That Jesus is the only door to eternal life. Jesus is the only door to eternal life. 
And before we begin, let me, let me just pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come before you as a people who need to hear from you. Father, we need to, to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. And so uh, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear from you, Lord, that you would give us clear eyes and, and, and clean ears to be able to actually hear spiritually from you through your word. Speak to us, Father. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us. Many of us are distracted, but help us to, to draw our attention near to you so that we can hear the voice that we need to hear, which is the voice of Christ himself. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. Now notice first, Jesus is pictured as a door for the sheep in verses 1 to 6. Uh, he is pictured as a door for the sheep. Now, Jesus opens with the image of a, a kind of sheep pen, which may have had a kind of courtyard around it and, and briars on top. Now, if you think about this, it sounds a little bit like a prison or something, like where you're trying to keep you know, the inmates in. But here the idea, it seems that it's meant to be protected. It's a wall of protection around these sheep. So listen close to the cast of characters that Jesus includes in this picture. Sheep, I know they're often pictured as, as dumb, but I think in this image what we want to see is, is that they're actually helpless and need of guidance. That seems to be what this image is giving us a picture of. Here's what he says beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But Jesus really, if you, if you notice, he begins this story of the good shepherd and the door with an image that really could be used to sell home security systems, right? He begins with this image of a thief and a robber. Now, a thief and a robber, he says, a, a man is trying to get at these sheep who are in this pen. He's climbing up and he's looking for some kind of way to get at them. Now, these words thief and robber, they may mean the same thing. Uh, a, a thief comes from the same word that we get the word for klepto, like kleptomaniac, somebody who has a tendency to take things. But I think in, in the Greek and, and in the, the New Testament, it seems to carry this idea of someone who's stealth-like, He's someone who kind of surprises you and you're not ready for it. You're not looking for it. In fact, this term is even used at one point to describe God himself and Jesus on the day of his return in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, where Paul warns that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, of course, Judas called, uh, was called a thief in John 12.6 because he was skimming money from Jesus and the disciples. And you'll remember that that didn't end well for him. He was a thief, and, and his end was death. In fact, seeking his life apart from Christ led to suicide. It wasn't a good end for the thief. So you can see it. The thief is trying to get in at these sheep, to, to take from them, to sneak from them, to get, and yet we are already given this hint that this is an end of destruction. But not only that, he's called a robber. Uh, you'll notice uh, this robber term is uh, used elsewhere for others. It's, it's used for Barabbas. It's a word that meant someone who would take something by a, a violent kind of nature. Uh, robber pictures a kind of bandit or an outlaw, just like Barabbas. Uh, you'll remember that Barabbas is that man that, that Israel cried out, please get, give us Barabbas and take Jesus to the cross, right? And, and Jesus was what? He was crucified between two Robbers, treated as a robber, the one who came to give 
was actually treated and killed as one who came to take. In fact, John 18.40 says that Jesus was crucified, or 18.40 says he was crucified between two robbers. These are men who look to take from the people of God rather than give. I think there's also a sense of the kind of desperation of the blindness. There's only one door. And this, these thieves and these robbers are in the dark and they're just, they're feeling around, climbing up, desperately trying to get in and they can't find the way. Well, don't miss a couple of realities here. First, the image of Jesus as the gate begins with sheep who are in danger of outside forces seeking to do them harm. The picture of the sheep is not that they are safe and they'd be just fine without a shepherd. The, the picture is that they are in danger. And don't miss this, the thieves and the robbers are those who are more interested in beating and eating sheep for their own selfish purposes than, than binding up their wounds to heal them or to feed them because they're hungry or to listen to their fears and make them feel safe. Again, in context, this is, I think, likely at least the Pharisees who have just roughed up this blind man in chapter 9 and cast him out of the temple. Why? Because he was healed of blindness. I mean, these are ones who, who don't come to heal, but come to hurt even those who have been healed by Christ. See, Jews rejected a Jew who put his faith in Jesus. They rejected the blind man because he accepted Jesus was from God. But there's a second thing here quickly that you see in these verses. Thieves and robbers look to get at the fold by means, any means, but the door, which is a general word that could mean gate. See, bad shepherds look to break in by any means but Jesus. They are so blind spiritually, they can't find the way in. You see it? Chapter 9, these bad shepherds are groping for a way in to understand through the law and other things, and yet here is Jesus whom the law pointed towards, the light of the world, and they are so blind that they can't see him when, they're right before, when he's right before them. See, they are dangerous to Jesus' sheep, and they're in danger themselves. But notice also in verses 2 to 5, the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd of the sheep in verses 2 to 5. Notice what it says, beginning in verses 2 and going down to 5. It says this, But he who enters by the sheep door, or by the door, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeepers opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. See, the, the shepherd, he goes through the door of the pen. He is an authorized caretaker here. Now, in a second, we're going to see he's, he's also the door. And the gatekeeper, which is likely a kind of under-shepherd to watch a large flock of sheep, recognizes the shepherd as do the sheep in the flock. You'll notice the tender relationship between this shepherd and his sheep. Now, I've never experienced anything like what's described here. Apparently, he has the kind of relationship when you call out to your pet, they actually come to you. I used to have a dog, Shep. We love Shep. Shep was a good dog, right? And Shep, uh, he was a, a good dog except for the fact that he did not know who I was. And when we would open the door, he would run as far and as fast away as he could. 
And as I would run out of my house, there were many times where my neighbors watched in bewilderment as I screamed after Shep, whistled for Shep, sort of offered him like all kinds of food, and Shep just kept running. My neighbor would come out, who babysat the dog sometimes, and she would say, hey Shep, he runs to her, like, this is good, I like her, I don't like you. It's because Shep knew that she cared well for him, and, and I guess I didn't. And that's kind of the nature of the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd here is those, those sheep knew who cared for them. They knew who was good to them. They recognized a voice of safety and care and love and plenty. You know, if, if you can think of a, shape, a sheep as a kind of human, they, they had warm affections for the shepherd as much as a sheep could. Notice here, this shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I want to notice just four things quickly here. First, shepherds may have been seen as lowly and dirty to others. Others might have walked the other way when they saw shepherds, but when the sheep hear his voice, they came running because they loved the shepherd who led them to safety, who fought for them, saving their lives, who bound their wounds up and fed them. Uh, these shepherds likely cuddled with their sheep, and these sheep loved their shepherd. He remembered each birth, health history, their eating habits. He knew that some sheep, like Timothy, only could have gluten-free. He was aware. And he knew that if he had gluten, it would hurt his tummy. He cared for his sheep. He knew their idiosyncrasies, their funny personalities. Second, the shepherd calls his sheep out of Judaism individually. He doesn't call out a sheep and their kids. Did you notice that? No, he, he calls each out by name. Image here seems to be Judaism and Jesus calling out to his voice, but he is calling each out by name. He doesn't call out all of Israel, but his sheep out of Israel called out to join the fold of this new messianic flock. And third, Western shepherds, they tend to drive their sheep from the back with a sheep dog, right? So the dog comes and nips at the, the sheep and like they get scared and they run. And I'm sure it's a very anxious thing to get bit by a dog so that you go the right way. But it's different, we're told, with Eastern shepherds, even to this day. They actually lead the sheep from the front by the sound of their voice. They're not trying to harass them into following. They actually are wooing them and calling them by their voice, and they follow because of the goodness of the one who's calling. Fourth, notice that a stranger, it says, will not follow but will run from the shepherd because Jesus' voice is strange to them. Now, some recognize Jesus' voice and they follow it. Others don't recognize Jesus' voice and they run away. Runs up to me a little bit of the way that adrenaline works. Like, what happens when, when adrenaline hits your system? It, it sort of ignites a kind of fight-flight response, right? And, and you'll notice here that for some, when they hear the voice of Jesus, they come running. They come running because of the beauty of the one they're running to, and yet there are others that as soon as they hear the voice of Jesus, they feel danger. There's danger to something that they love more than Christ that is being called in, in, into reckoning, and they run or they fight rather than flying to Jesus. In fact, you see that. You'll notice in verse 5, they 
they run away. But in verse 6, we are reminded of the fact that they still just can't even see, hear, or understand the voice of Christ as he's right before them. Because notice, see, the religious leaders still don't recognize Jesus' voice in 6. I mean, we've been tracking this throughout. Chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, here we are in 10. Jesus has worked miracles. They still don't understand. I mean, just take note in verse 6. They did not understand the figure of speech that Jesus used with them. This is not just a genre issue that these folks have with Jesus. See, this figure of speech, it says in verse 6, that Jesus used with them. This was the figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. I wish it said still. Now that word for figure of speech is different but similar to, as I said before, a kind of parable, a picture story that has a kind of cryptic meaning to it. And any way you cut it, you'll notice the religious leaders didn't recognize the voice of Jesus because they were what? Not his sheep. Now this isn't new language. If we're following and tracking through John, you'll notice the Father is given credit with the initiative of drawing individuals to Jesus throughout John's gospel. And I think that ought to humble us. So let me give you some examples for you to consider in John. If you're thinking through, like, how does this work? And you know, what does it look like for God to have a sovereign role in our salvation? I think, I think much of it is mysterious to us, but we can listen to the voice of the shepherd and what he says. Notice, one, John 6.44 that Malachi covered uh, just a few weeks ago, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So just some questions to think about as you're thinking about this verse. What does he mean in saying that no one can come to me being Christ unless the Father draws him, a singular person? And did you take note that Jesus promises to raise up the one the Father sends to Christ on the last day. In other words, the Father sins, and then Jesus, on the back end, promises to raise on the last day. And there's a lot that happens in between, but that seems to be the beginning and the end of the work of God on behalf of his people, his sheep. And that connects the beginning with the end, doesn't it? And did you take note that the same Father who sends Jesus draws individual believers? Now, I don't want to dwell here, but doesn't it seem that this text highlights the initiative of the Father in salvation, saying that it is actually something that God the Father wanted to do? Jesus didn't have to like arm wrestle him to save a people for himself. God the Father was for it. And just after our text, in a second text, John 10, 26, you'll see that Jesus tells the Jews, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I just told you that. Remember verse 6? You can't hear or understand verse 4 and 3. Now, plain reading of this text seems to affirm that in some way being a sheep of Jesus is prior to faith pointing to some predestinating purpose of God. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger comments in his commentary saying this, one may infer they were his sheep even prior to his calling them. And then in those third, in John 17, 11, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross and he prays for his disciples. And later he's going to say, look, this is the same kind of prayer I'm praying for all believers that will come. And he says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. The, the ones you've given me, keep them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
See, Jesus believes his Father can keep those whom the Father gave to Christ. And all of this, I believe, ought to humble us by the grace of God in saving each of us individually. And neither John nor Jesus, catch me, neither John nor Jesus intends any of this and all of this to mean that these religious leaders or anyone else who rejects Jesus Christ is not morally responsible for putting their faith in Christ. If you do not believe, you will not be saved. Anyone who believes will be saved. There's no other way to salvation except in Jesus Christ. In fact, the purpose of the Gospel of John in John 20, 30 to 31 is this. If you're looking for the purpose of the book, you can look it up in the ESV, and you're wondering, how did you figure that out? It's because the title is The Purpose of This Book. And here's what he says. He says in John 20, 30 to 31, now Jesus did many other signs, these miracles that he's doing, creating bread out of thin air, right? Like pretty, I've not seen people do that. Like not in real time. Uh, Raising people from the dead. These kind of miracles. He did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So many that you couldn't include them in all the books of the world. But he says, uh, he did all of these signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you what? May believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this because he knew that you needed to believe to have eternal life. That's the purpose of this book. And so even today, there might be some that are listening to this and by God's grace might be giving you eternal life through the hearing of the word of God. See, the purpose of John is to lead you to faith in Christ, resulting in eternal, abundant life. Now, if you're a non-Christian, maybe you've you've had this line of thinking before, like I used to have. I remember when I was a kid, I used to have this line of thinking. It It is not natural just to kids. I think adults think this way too. But had this idea, man, I I just believe that if God would perform some kind of miracle like the ones that I'm reading about in the Bible, man, I would surely believe. Like that's all it takes. My problem is really just evidence. I mean, if I had enough facts, then I would believe the right thing. Now, this is before I went to seminary, right? But I think you have to have a kind of humility to realize that in this text, We have religious leaders of Jesus' day who are experts in the law and telling people how to apply the law. And Jesus is standing right before them face to face and they do not see and they do not believe. Sign after sign, so many signs that they couldn't fit them in the book and yet they still did not believe. They needed a miraculous work of the Lord to believe. They needed God. They needed someone to give them sight. So let me just encourage you, as you're reading through John, one thing that John wants to make sure that we don't do is that we don't overestimate our ability to see spiritually on our own and that we don't underestimate the miracle of spiritual sight in seeing and loving Jesus. It's a a work of God. It is a good thing that God has done. He deserves all of the glory. Let me just think about it. These these religious leaders of Jesus' day, they saw signs and adrenaline kicked in. Rather than worshiping like the blind man who received sight, they fought, they wanted to kill Jesus, and they ran. And maybe that's your response today when you hear about Jesus Christ. You fight it, you run from it, you discredit it, and you think that it's all you and that if you, if you just had enough evidence, you would believe. But the message of the gospel is, is that you need the new birth. You need to be born again. That new birth comes by the hearing of the word of God. So if you don't love Jesus, pray and ask God 
to save you, to do a miracle in your heart right now, helping you to see your sinfulness and the desperate need for the only one who can save you from eternal death, Jesus Christ. There's another thing that we see here at Trinity Bible Church. Just stop and pause for a minute at the beauty of what's happening in this text. Do you see it? Don't skip over it. Jesus calls each sheep by name. Now, you want to think about the value of the brothers and sisters who are members of Trinity Bible Church, who you have covenanted together with to live life together. You want to, you want to love them better. You want to be humbled in the way that you approach them. You want to rejoice in them in a way that is otherworldly. Then just be reminded constantly that that person that is sitting next to you who has professed Christ is someone who bears the name of Jesus, but also whom Jesus himself has called out by name to be his. Now just think about that. He has has called out Jesus, and he has said, Cindy, you are mine. You are mine. I love you. You are part of my flock. Stephen, mine. Hanul, you are one of my flock, my sheep. Do, Do you see the beauty of that? Sitting next to Adriana right now, your wife, and it's She is one of the sheep of God. Everybody's waving like, yep. I was talking about her, but he's like, me too. Yeah, you're a sheep. And the value and the beauty of the sheep is the fact that they are called by Christ and they are part of his flock. They're not goats. They're not other people's sheep that don't have a future like we have. Brothers and sisters, we just need to be reminded regularly, not only the fact that I'm a sheep of Jesus and I'm special, But these brothers and sisters all around, these are sheep of the good shepherd. But there's something that we need to know about this. Jesus says, second, second big point, I am the door for the sheep. So who's the sheep? It's the one who's gone through the right way, and that's the door in verses 7 to 10. Now, here Jesus speaks of thieves and robbers again. But, But hang on close. I think he's actually shifting the picture a little bit. You'll notice The gatekeeper has disappeared. And here's what happens. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me, they were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, concerning this door imagery, as I mentioned before, commentator William Barclay says that that shepherds placed sheep in this enclosed area, you know, with a barbed wire on top, briars, all that. And it usually didn't have a door of any kind. And so what happened, he says, was that at night, the shepherds himself would lay down across the opening so that no sheep could get out or in, except by his body. Now, maybe this is why Jesus is calling himself the door of the sheep, and these images are so closely knit together. I don't know if we can be sure if Jesus has this image in mind, but either way, Jesus is the door. He is the gate for these sheep. And if you want to be part of this flock, you, you have to go through him. There's no other way in. Now, did you catch that he speaks of the thieves and robbers who came before Jesus? 
He's picking these thieves and robbers up again. I think that these might be the same thieves and robbers, but it might actually be broadening the scope of who these thieves and robbers are. Because notice all that came before me, all the thieves and robbers that came before me, sort of implying there were many. Now, he might be thinking about messianic pretenders who preceded him. Uh, There were some who came calling up for revolution so that they could have freedom and victory because they were the Messiah. And they would take up the sword, but those people who followed them ended up in death. You'll remember that even Ezekiel warned of bad shepherds from Ezekiel 34, 2-4 that we began with, where he, he talks about these bad shepherds saying, shepherds of Israel were the ones who only take care for themselves, but do not care for the flock. Now again, Andreas Kostenberger adds, others who might be in this group of thieves and robbers who preceded him. He says maybe false prophets during Jesus' day. Zealots, the high priestly circles that controlled Judaism in Jesus' day. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. Now we know at least this was the Pharisees. These people were the Pharisees who were blind guides who can't find the door when it's in front of their faces. Maybe they're blind thieves and robbers who can't find their way in for a reason. But we know that they can't find their way in. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, um, as I was thinking about these verses today, about these blind guides who have caused harm to the sheep, I was just reminded, I don't know if you've noticed, have you noticed that things have gotten just a little bit crazy out there in in the world? Um, Like, literally, the world is burning. Have you seen California? It's on fire. Like, things are going a little bit crazy right now, and especially during our political season. I mean, there's just so much friction hostility, even amongst Christians and churches, uh, we find all kinds of divisions. I think we just need to be aware that sometimes politicians, if we're thinking clearly, try to use religious language pretending to be pro-Jesus to manipulate the masses. I really don't have a particular candidate in mind, but I was reading a, a book recently by Robert Beanie, And he makes this point in his book, Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics. In this book, he he gives this illustration to make the point. He says, you know, Stalin, he used Russian orthodoxy to strengthen the Soviets' wartime resolve against Nazi Germany. Now, after the the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, Lenin actually began to persecute and kill priests. And when Stalin took over, he just kind of continued the practice But as he saw things getting kind of scary with with Nazi Germany, what he decided to do was actually pull back on all of the persecution of the the Christians and, and essentially lay off so that he could raise up sort of support for his fighting endeavors. But Beanie writes, when the Soviet Union was under threat from Nazis, Stalin made a calculated decision to relax persecution and use orthodoxy to, uh, to rally Russians to greater efforts against the Nazis. Persecution resumed after victory was assured. And he, he shows how the same thing happened with Hitler in Nazi Germany. And, and in the book, there, there, there have been some that have claimed that that same kind of thing has happened in the United States with, uh, with all parties involved. 
See, the world is dark, and some will claim to speak for Jesus, especially during elections, while their lives and their doctrines are anything but pro-Jesus. I see some who are being put forward as like, you know, sort of the Christian answer, and I'm sitting there going, I don't know if that person could pick out Jesus in a lineup. They have no idea what the good shepherd looks like. So you wonder, in those moments, are we thinking wisely about politics? Well, let me just give a plug. Uh, We have a class right now to help you think through these things. I don't have time right now, but Mal is doing a great job with our class Politics, Idolatry, and Civility. And if you think you're struggling with any of those, you need to come on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 7.30, and he's going to be teaching on that. It's been a great time, but come and think about how to vote, how to think about voting. We're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we want to help you think with the mind of Christ so you can make godly decisions to the glory of God. Not only that, don't miss this, Christians... These verses tell us that we as Christians need to watch out for wolves. We need to watch out for the thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers of our day. See, Jesus' sheep don't follow false teachers who create a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. Are are you, are you with me? Did you know that you can use the name of Jesus and mean something different than what the Bible means by Jesus? We find that, guess what, even in the Bible. Just go read 1 John. But Paul here, see, Jesus is speaking to Jewish leaders, trying to convince Jews that Jesus isn't the Messiah. But we need to be reminded, as Paul reminded the elders of Ephesus, to pay careful attention to themselves and to their flocks. In Acts 20, 29 to 30, as Paul is about to go away and he's handing over the mantle to the elders, he says, I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise a men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Don't miss this. There are still a lot of twisted voices today posing as Jesus. Let me just give you four. There there are a lot. And I feel like it's it's just good shepherding sometimes to to give examples of, of what we find in real time, in our context, as sort of false posing Jesuses. You might have the self-help Jesus who is presented by Joel Osteen. You know, Joel Osteen, he has said publicly, sin is not on the table at my church. Well, my goodness, if sin is not on the table, then I guess Jesus is not a big deal there. And what about another one? Second, the modalist Jesus of T.D. Jakes, who says that Jesus and the Father are really different modes of the same God rather than distinct persons of the one Godhead. What about the self-actualization Jesus? You know, those others, and the one that we're about to talk about, you can find in any Christian bookstore, even though those don't, those don't exist anymore. But the self-actualization Jesus It's really a Jesus we hear everywhere. This might be the most popular Jesus that I hear day in and day out. And it's really more akin to a secular source like Elizabeth Gilbert from Eat, Pray, Love. Anybody familiar with that? Yeah, like it's okay. I mean, if you like the movie, like you don't have to raise your hand. We love all kinds of people here. I'm a guy, so if you're a girl, anyway, I'm I'm getting worse in trouble the more I talk. So we're going to move on. I think, though, this kind of philosophy that we find in this book is one of the most dangerous theological type ideas that we have in the church today. See, this gospel says you need to follow your heart to happiness and kill anyone that gets in the way. Have you ever seen that? Like, I get calls about this pastorally all the time. I've had a number of wives who have called me in the past 
over my couple of decades of ministry who have said, I'm leaving my husband. He's done nothing wrong. He's actually a godly man, but I'm just not happy. And I know that Jesus wants me to be happy, so I know Jesus doesn't want me to be with him. Do you see that? Like, that is not biblical. That is not the word of God. That's eat, pray, love. And yet, we find it all over the church. And fourth, let's not forget the Jesus calling Jesus by Sarah Young. I know some of you are like, man, I have this book. I didn't know it was bad. Uh, so I'm talking about it. Uh, I see it all over the place. And every time I see it, I just try to ignore it and say, hey, have you thought about reading the Bible today? And the reason is because Sarah Young, she actually believes, she says that she, is, she hears from Jesus. She, she says, what you need to do spiritually is learn to listen in the silence so you can hear the actual voice of Jesus. And, and if you think about it, there's a problem. There's a problem in that she has, in her book, said that I am now transposing what I have received from Jesus and I'm giving him to you. Now, she's had to edit periodically Jesus' words to make them more popular. But then we got another problem because you're not supposed to add to or take away from the word of God, right? And yet her whole book is doing that anyway, but even when she adds to it, she's having to like edit the thing she adds to it. So it's like all kinds of problems. But those books are not books that are Christian, and yet they have sold 15 million copies over that, pushing something that is a non-Christian doctrine being sold to most people who I believe are looking for the face of Christ and desperate to see him. Let me just say, uh, these sources are not healthy sources. They are not the voice of the true Jesus. If you want to hear the voice of the good shepherd, if you want to know the way to the true gate, we need to look in the scriptures themselves where Jesus speaks. Just think about it. When Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, after he has been raised from the dead, appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does he do to open their eyes to who he is? Where does he point them? Does he say, hey, let me show you another miracle real quick. I've got this covered. I can do this. I'm Lord of Lords, King of Kings. No. He says, let me show you Moses and the prophets. Let me take you to the scriptures. Let me take you to the Old Testament and show you that I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. See, Jesus says, if you want to hear from me, if you want to see me and you are blind, then I want to take you to my word. That's how we know the voice of Christ. Jesus pointed the way. It's the scriptures. It's his holy word. See, we know that to follow Jesus means to follow his voice. Spiritual maturity in following Jesus rises as we pay close attention to our lives and our Bibles. And we make sure that, that these things are coming more into unity day by day. You know, maybe there's a bad day like the stock market, but it goes up, right? Like there's a, a positive trend. So if you're thinking to yourself, how do I learn to mature in the gospel and such that I am growing in understanding and hearing and identifying the voice of Jesus, how do we do it? It's kind of like the FBI when they're trying to learn how to pick out a counterfeit from an original. Where do they spend their time? Studying all the counterfeits? No, studying the original, the authentic version. They look at a dollar bill day after day, studying it, meditating on it, so that they know it like they know the back of their hand, so that when a counterfeit pops up, it is clear. That is not the voice of Jesus. Do you see it? That's where maturity grows, as we are looking at God's word. Also, did you catch the sheep's response? Be encouraged. Did you catch the sheep's response to all of the thieves and robbers in verse 8? 
Did you see how they responded? Look what it says. The sheep did not listen to them. Maybe you just looked over that detail. But, but that seems pretty confident. The sheep, they, they did not listen to them. They know there is one door that leads to abundant life. That's eternal life, Jesus himself. In other words, Jesus will not lose his, his sheep. They're not going to stray away after false teachers. John picks up on this later as, as he's pastoring a flock who is fearful because they have watched brilliant people leave their congregation claiming to have truth that they don't have. And they're worried. They're worried that, do they know something we don't know? And John is a wise pastor. He comes and speaks to them in this letter, giving them courage, helping them to know that they have eternal life. And he says, these false teachers are antichrist. They are not the real deal. They are counterfeits. And they have gone out from you. But he says in 1 John 2, 19, Here's the truth. Here's the real deal. They went out from us, but they were not ever truly of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain they are not of us. See, Jesus' sheep know all other doors lead to poverty, death, and destruction. But the difference between the gate and the thieves and robbers is clear. The door leads to salvation in abundance. Did you see that? Leads to salvation and abundance. Verse 9 pictures Jesus as the way to the safety and abundance of the flock of the good shepherd. There is no better zip code than the zip code of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a place to like sort of settle your roots, Jesus is the one. He becomes the roots, but you get it. And the only way to the security of the fold of Christ and to the pasture, this pasture that he speaks of, is through Christ. See, good shepherds help sheep find green pastures. That's where the word for pasture comes from. In the Old Testament, the pasture represents abundant life for God's people. You know, it's often pictured as this lush garden that's teeming with life and overflowing. In verse 10, the thief, by comparison, looks to kill, steal, and destroy. I notice the First, that the gate is the exclusive means by which sheep can enter the fold. There is no other way. There's no other way into the fold of the good shepherd except through the gate, which is Christ. Now, verses 9 to 10, Don Carson, he, he comments this way. He says, this, this statement that we read in verses 9 to 10, it, it's actually a proverbial way of insisting there is only one way of receiving eternal life. Only one source of the knowledge of God. Only one fountain of spiritual nourishment. Only one basis for spiritual security. Jesus alone. Now, if you're a non-Christian, don't miss this. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. I know this is not like a message that, that you might hear every day. In fact, I was reading a book at one time, called Jesus and Buddha. It was written by a Christian, Marcus Borg, and, and Jack Cornfield. Uh, Marcus Borg professes to be a Christian. Cornfield is a Buddhist. And they wrote this together because they believe Jesus, Jesus and Buddha, quote, speak with one heart. In other words, it seems that both of these guys sort of have a, a way at getting to God. There are many ways, right? Many doors, and you just need to choose your door. And why can't we just all get along? Uh, he actually, Cornfield, gives us illustration that, that gave him this vision. 
because obviously he didn't get it from the Bible, but, but he was in Vietnam, and as planes were, were flying overhead, and as helicopters were firing away, and as the war was raging on, he looked up, and he saw these two massive 50-foot statues, one of Buddha on one side and Jesus on the other, and they were actually hugging one another. And it was in that that he quotes, Buddha and Jesus stood there like brothers expressing compassion and healing for all who would follow their way. Now let me just ask you, if you're non-Christian, we've just read John 10. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like the voice of Jesus in John 10? Not at all. Jesus says there's one way. No, Jesus, I think if he were to hear that, he would say, no, Buddha isn't just another door to eternal life. He's just another door to death, destruction for eternity, both now and forever. Jesus, I, I am the only way. So don't leave. If, you've, if you're hearing this this morning, don't leave without putting your faith in this Jesus. And tell one of us so we can talk to you about what it means to be a believer and Christian. Don't lose sight of the glorious reality that we have in Jesus Christ is the door to abundant life. Did you notice that? It's abundant life. Abundant life, that's a word that, you know, it points to eternal life. I think that's what life usually, normally, a lot means in John. But notice he calls it abundant life because I do think that it's eternal, but, but there's also something else about the beauty of the abundance of the nature of what it means to be in Christ. And, and we see pictures of this throughout the rest of the New Testament. And we'll be talking about this next week as we meditate more on the good shepherd of our souls. But just for now, don't lose sight of the glorious reality of what we have in Christ as the door to the abundant life. Think about it. We were in darkness and we walked in to his marvelous light. We were once a people who were no people, enemies of God, rebels, destined for eternal wrath. And we walked through the door and he said, and now you're an adopted son and daughter. Now you are children of the king. You are not facing my wrath. You are facing and invited into my eternal pleasure. Do you see the difference? We have been invited through that door. Isn't that the door that you want to live in? Isn't that a door to get excited about walking through? We'll be talking about that more next week. But don't forget, brothers and sisters, you are chosen and precious to God. You have a future that is incredibly bright. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have an unfading inheritance that awaits you. And God promises that he will assuredly finish that good work that he has begun in you. It is a good door to walk through to the glory of God. Let's pray.